From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. What are we looking at here? Is dead cat bounce? Is it the bottom? Is it, you know, are we setting in some kind of uh, support here? Dan Genter, he's a CEO, CIO and chairman. So I guess he kind of runs the whole place. RNC Genter Capital Management. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us here. When you see a, you know, a couple past days like we've seen, you know, where you actually have some green on the screen in the midst of double digit declines in the S&P and NASDAQ. How are you looking at this equity market here? Well, look, I think what we're seeing is a, a market that's generally trying to find its bottom, frankly. Uh, you know, even though we could make a, you can make a good, good case that if you really wanted to have a capitulation, certainly we could go off another 5 maybe 10%. But I, I don't see it at this point. I think we'll hold probably at down 5 if we don't hold somewhere in this as a basing pattern. And I think it's a, a pretty normal transition, frankly, of, of what you typically see when – you know, it, the, when the Fed and other indicators keep telling you what's going to happen, it's always amazing to me that people are still surprised when it does. Uh, but then when they finally digest it and realize that multiples are going to have to adjust, you're, if you're in a situation where you have rising inflation, you have rising interest rates, it's going to push down GDP, it's going to push down earnings, and multiples need to adjust. It's, it's pretty well stock valuation 101. And, and now we've seen that adjustment. I mean, we're at much fairer PEs right now based on this economic condition. I think we're in a basing pattern where people should be buying into this. Um, I like buying into the big days of weakness, especially when there's weakness for no reason. You know, I find that to be an effective deployment of assets. And so I think people should, you know, they may not want to jump in head first, but putting some toes in the water here is a, a good thing to do looking at the next certainly two to three years, if not, frankly, the next year. I guess the concern is valuations or the concern was valuations are you um are you happy that we've gotten down to um a level that is more consistent with history still pretty strong on the s p 500 frankly a pe of 20 and change and especially looking at a fed that's going to raise what another 100 150 basis points well, look, I think that you're right from the standpoint that uh, I truly do believe in the old adage that you, you can't fight the Fed. I mean, you, we have definitely transitioned from where we had a tailwind to a crosswind. So, you're, you're, look, maybe it's not a direct hurricane force headwind, but you're definitely fighting, you know, a strong crosswind, if you will, that is making people deviate off course and it's harder to stay on course. But, the, but I think the valuations now are, are at points that you can, again, you can get back into the game if 
not as a short-term trader, but if you're indeed looking at, I normally say two to three years. I like to look at a three-year time horizon. Now I think it's much stronger even looking at one year. Because if you look at, at where the valuations are, I, I agree from an S&P standpoint, you could say at 20, you know, based upon, you know, somewhere at 230 on the S&P and 250 next year on the S&P, you know, you're above the 15.5 long-term average. But, but bear in mind, interest rates were still a lot higher when you're looking at that long-term average over the last 15, 20 years. And when you look at where we are, I mean, look, the, the Russell 1000 value is right now down to a 13.9 PE, right? And it's down from 16 to, that's normally about 15.5. Even the Russell growth, which was stratospheric, is at 22.7, and that's down from, from 30.6, and its average is 22.1. So value stocks are still undervalued. Growth stocks are now fairly valued. And, you know, I don't think you're going to time the last uh, 5%, 6% of this. Hey, Dan, many of our listeners, if they look at their portfolio, probably a big, big chunk of it is made up of some of those big uh, cap technology names. And if I think, look at Amazon down 30% year to date. Uh, Microsoft, Apple, 15 to 25% down year to date. Do I get back into those names? Do I add to my positions there? How do you think about some of those, you know, big, big cap tech names that have been so good for so long? Well, for those names, I would have a, a standard position. And so that, that to me, is somewhere a 25 to 3% position. You're, even though they've pulled back dramatically, you're still dealing at, at very high PEs. And the fact of the matter is you're just looking at slower growth. And, and those dynamics you just can't overcome. I mean, if the, if the economy is going to grow slower, if GDP is going to be slower, and financing costs and capitalization rates are higher, then earnings come down. You know, it's very straightforward. And if you're in that situation, I mean, you, can't, can, you cannot support a peg ratio uh, and P.E. ratios that are at those stratospheric levels. Now, I would not abandon those because I believe that, frankly, there's just so much popularity. There's so much momentum. People aren't going to abandon those names, and they'll probably always sell at a premium P.E., but I don't want to be over. I don't, it's not a bargain basement, you know. There's not a garage sale going on here, so I wouldn't be overweighting the position. But but having you know somewhere a three percent average position, I think is that's where we are with those names. Just quickly, you've been around RNC Gender since 1968. What's the origin story? If you can wrap it up for us in 30 seconds. Sure. I mean, we we really started in. You know, really back before the Pension Reform Act and before investment advisors really were popular, just really in a, frankly, a pretty fundamental position that we felt it was better to provide investment advice for fees versus commissions. And so we started on a pretty simple premise that, you know, we felt if we were charging fees based on assets, which is now popular, then yeah, everybody right. benefited as the portfolios went up versus charging transaction fees. And we were kind of one of the first to do that, certainly first in L.A., and it's worked out well for us. Yeah. At the right. avant-garde, because that's then swept <laughs> across the industry uh, back when I started working on the street in the 90s. Yeah. All right, Dan, great stuff. Dan Genter, CEO of RNC Genter Capital Management. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, 
OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Now, when I look at oil, I guess I've got kind of a fixed supply. I've got a reopening global economy, so I guess that means demand is going up and like any commodity that should push price of oil higher. That being said, I'm still surprised, maybe shocked to see WTI crude at $115 an ounce. So let's bring in an expert, maybe explain it to us a little bit better than my simple analysis. Fernando Valley, senior analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fernando, again, WTI crude at $115. I'm shocked slash surprised. Should I be? Well, if you if you wondered if there was any risk from the Chinese lockdowns uh, priced into under $200 oil, uh, you, you've now found out that there was significant pressure. So as we as soon as we hear there is an easing of lockdowns in Shanghai, uh, both Brent and OECI take off. And uh, you know we talked about how Russian supply was going to fall because of sanctions, and and we're starting to see that even though Europe and uh, Asia are still purchasing Russian energy, just the lack of uh, of uh, capital and equipment and, and services from the Western providers has already uh, led to a, to a drop off. We also talked about how production in the U.S. was going to struggle to, to catch up because we don't have the people, we don't have the equipment, we don't even have the sand to really uh, get to the, the levels that the that we would need to balance the the current demand. Well, and it seems like the industry just isn't willing to get um, to put as much capex as would be necessary in to ramp up production only to have their legs cut off as soon as this thing um, gets to equilibrium again. Exactly. It, it's, it's difficult to make a, a five to seven year decision on, on uh, building new facilities and making the necessary growth in your co company if you don't think that that uh, scenario is going to, to continue for, for such a long period of time. And you have to remember, uh, Shale didn't really make uh, a lot of free cash flow for the past 15 years. This is the first they're, they're expected to make as much free cash flow in 2022 as they've done for the past 15 years combined. Wow. Uh, and so when you put that into perspective, uh, they're really paying back their initial investments. And th th what brought us to being close to being energy independent, although we're not technically energy independent as of today. So, Fernando, how about OPEC plus? Um, talk to us about production. If OPEC plus say, hey, we wanted to increase production by 10 or 20 percent, does it have the capability to do that? Uh, it does, and but they don't really have the will. And the question is, for how long can they increase production for, for that by that amount? Uh, Saudi Aramco has talked about increasing their production uh, to 12 to 13 million barrels a day by 20, 2026. Uh, it does take time, especially to grow at that magnitude. Uh, they're currently producing close to 9 million barrels a day of, of crude oil. Um, they could probably go as high as 10 to 10 and a half, uh, and they are the largest one uh, on that growth. And then the other ones have geopolitical issues, uh, your Iraqs, your Irans, that they could raise production uh, significantly uh, on an absolute level, but they have their own issues guaranteeing the security or uh, sanctions in the case of Iran. You know, we've heard a number of people, uh, Paul, you and Tom were talking yesterday, I think, to Bill Smead. Yep. Down in Phoenix, and he was saying he loves oil producers right now because they're priced at $70 a barrel, and obviously we're trading far up above that, at least in TI terms, I think 115 right now. 
I also saw Marco Kolanovic, JP Morgan, who was voted the number one equity-linked strategist in II last year. That's good. That's a good bump for his bonus, right? Yeah. He recommended using recent weakness in oil and energy aims to add exposure there as well. Are you starting to see that as a consensus, Fernando? Yeah, it seems like well, the, 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 there's a, a return to oil, and especially against some of the earlier uh, bellwethers in the sector tech and uh, retail, uh, especially as that sec those sectors have weakened, uh, oil has come back into to, to preference. And when you consider the free cash flow that they are generating, and that most of those uh, that free cash flow is being reverted to shareholders, it is a compelling uh, distribution yield that uh, dwarfs what the S&P is currently offering. So where do you think uh, oil gets to and over what time frame? Do we still have more to move higher with the crude? I think uh, in the current conjecture, yes. It, it remains a question of what the U.S. does uh, with rates and how demand reacts. I think ultimately we our major concern is that higher a combination of higher rates and inflation will have a significant impact on emerging market uh, demand. And we're starting to see some of those cracks in the horizon. Uh, that's probably still in the second half of the year. Uh, but we think there's room to run uh, through the summer, especially as the Northern Hemisphere gets into its high demand season. And, and that could be north of 120 uh, for, for WTI. What happens if China uh, lets up on the lockdowns? We're, we're seeing, I think, fewer infections intra-community. And there's a lot of talk anyway about the fact that the party needs to, to let up a little bit. Is that going to spur the demand side big time? Yes. I, I, again, if we all return to, the, to, the, to the, our usual situations, yes. The big question there is supply chains, because regardless of uh, returning to, to normal tomorrow, we still had a massive disruption and a lot of ships that are parked uh, outside of ports in, in China. Uh, and that will lead to that cost inflation that we talked about. So again, in the short term, yes, we think that there, that could be that could mean higher demand as China reopens and experiences something uh, similar, slightly less uh, aggressive as we saw in the U.S. and in Europe when we reopened. Um, but our biggest concern is that the, the, the real push from inflation will come in the second half, uh, and especially from emerging markets that are already on the brink. I mean, you, you can see the situ situations in Sri Lanka, in Brazil, uh, in Mexico. Uh, the fiscal situations are worse, and uh, the protests are, are increasing uh, over the concerns over food uh, and fuel. So I see just, you know, I guess it shouldn't surprise us. Saudi Aramco has said to weigh an IPO of its trading unit amid oil boom. This seems like a big deal. It could be a big IPO, like $30 billion. What do you make of that? Just a, a good opportunistic play there, Fernando? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, Paul. I think it's a, it's an opportunistic play. Uh, clearly, Saudi doesn't need the, the capital right now, but they are trying to increase uh, the, the diversification of their economy, and they're trying to, to get more capital into the kingdom. Uh, you know, the only concern with trading, having a separate trading arm from your integrated oil company is that uh, they ultimately play hand in hand. You're trying to sell your cargoes. And sometimes you maximize the overall profit by putting that profit in the integrated side and sometimes at the trading. So they'll have to make it very clear as to how they'll, uh, what kind of Chinese wall there will be between the two the two entities in order to make this a, a viable offering to, to third party investors. 
All right, interesting stuff. Again, WTI crude oil pushing 115 a barrel. Go figure. Fernando Valley, uh, senior analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, covering all things uh, energy. All right, let's dig into these Walmart numbers. Stocks down 9% here. Inflation, a big issue for the costs there. Uh, Aaron Sundaram, he's a senior equity research analyst at CFRA, joins us. Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time here. What's your takeaway from these Walmart numbers? Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was, um, it was a rare miss by Walmart. You know, historically, they've done, Walmart has done a great job managing expectations. So rarely do they miss on earnings. So, so when they do miss like this, especially by this kind of magnitude, you know, you tend to see a pretty big hit to the, to the stock price. But, you know, the big takeaway that from, from, from the earnings call today, what I, what I took away is that, you know, a lot of the issues that they pointed to was really on the bottom line. And a lot of that can be isolated to this, uh, the specific quarter, and maybe some of that will flow into Q2. So, you know, in our view, you know, don't expect Walmart to continue missing like this, because like I said, they rarely do miss on the bottom line. And, and, you know, historically during periods of tough economic times, challenging times, Walmart has historically outperformed competition. So, you know, that for, for those reasons, we kept our buy rating today. We did drop our 12-month target price to 162 from 165, but we kept our buy rating on the, stock, on the shares. The thing is, if I look at, you know, if I compare to what happened at Home Depot, um, which, you know, the beat was all driven by higher prices, they actually had lower unit sales. It looks tough for Walmart since they can't raise prices like that, or at least that's the narrative. I don't know if it's true, but that's, this is what I hear. They can't raise prices until they absolutely have, have to. Um, is, is that actually the case? Yeah, so the, their average ticket price in the U.S. was only up 3%. And you know, if, you, if you assume that their cost, cost inflation is probably up double digits for them, so they only increased prices by 3%. So there was a mismatch there. But they noted that mismatch on, on the call today. And, and a lot of that was due to fuel costs because fuel really started to surge at the end of February. And it was really tough for really a lot of these retailers to, to manage that, 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 those costs. And I think now they're doing a little bit better job kind of matching pricing and costs. So we, we do expect more pricing to flow into to Walmart's income statements uh, over the next few quarters because, because outside the fuel, the fuel aspect for, you know, things like food and other consumables and even general merchandise items, Walmart, is, they, they're noting that they are passing those costs through, at least the, the cost increase. They're not offsetting the margin impact, but it's the costs are being passed over to the, to the consumer. And it seems, Aaron, that, boy, if I'm Walmart, if I can't pass cost increases through, who can? Because, I mean, where are my customers generally going to go? Uh, I'm so big and have, you know, just so many items. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of goes to show the state of the overall consumer right now. You know, Walmart is probably over-indexed to the to the lower-income consumer, and I think we're starting to see some cracks among the lower-income consumer. You know, Walmart noted that you know some some consumers are trading down from branded products to, to private labels because that tends to be a little bit cheaper. Uh, they haven't really seen that among the middle-income consumer or the upper-income consumer. But you know, the longer inflation stays at this elevated level. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's most, most likely what we're going to see is more consumers you know, change their shopping habits, uh, trade down from branded to private label, uh, shop at more value-oriented stores like a Walmart or, or a Costco or, or somewhere, somewhere like that. Um, what do you if, you, if you look across the uh, retail spectrum, are there companies that you think are going to be winners and losers here? I mean, are, are there some that you feel really strongly about? 
Yeah, I mean, certainly all the, the, the we really like the, the big box diversified retailers. So that includes Walmart, Costco, Costco. Uh, Target as well. You know, not only do we like them because they're a large big box diversified retailer you know, that also prides themselves on value, but they also have these alternative business streams that are starting to pop up into their business. And it's things like advertising, things like yep. uh, first party and third party marketplaces, fulfillment services, healthcare, financial services, all these things you know, were kind of non-existent for a lot of these companies five, 10 years ago. And, and these are very uh, right. asset light high margin businesses. And as these businesses continue to grow, I think these retailers can continue to invest in, in the core retail business and yep. in, in areas like wages and, and, and so forth and continue to grow the bottom line. All right, good stuff. Aaron Sunder, I'm Senior Equity Research Analyst at CFRA, breaking down the Walmart numbers. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We had some retail sales numbers come out this morning. Pretty darn solid for the consumer there. Let's break it down with Angie Solanke, uh, National Director of Retail Services for the United States for Collier's. Angie, again, you know, we kind of had the retail sales numbers. They look pretty good to me. What is your takeaway? I completely agree with you. Um, there's a lot of resiliency that we're seeing. And so, as you stated, sales are up. We saw an increase by 7% year over year, so that's incredible. I think what we're really seeing right now is people are coming back to work, and there's been a nice, healthy increase in the apparel side um, where people are saying, hey, it's time to kind of get back into some new clothes and head on back into the office here, even though it's a shorter week. People still want to look good. Do we not have to be concerned about savings rates? They've dropped back below pre-pandemic levels. Right now, we're looking at 6.2%. And um, Goldman Sachs chief economist Jan Hatzias today said that consumers are reaching for leverage again. Um, are we getting to that kind of good old American place where uh, we spend more than we make? We are. Um, I think there's still a balance between that because I think people are still you know, looking at inflation, what's going on from more macroeconomics. But nonetheless, you know, they've been saving for quite a while now. And so a little spend, not 100%, but even just 30 to 40% more in spend um, from their perspective is not a bad thing. I think we need to really look at how we're taking the spend and where we're seeing some of those increases. If we look at, for example, the increase in just spend in restaurants, it's a nice healthy growth of 2%. So, Angie, we kind of had a mixed bag in terms of the retail earnings today. Home Depot, uh, pretty good, be able to pass along price increases. Walmart, not so much, and the stock's down about 9%. So as you looked at those two big, big retailers, how did you think about that vis-a-vis -vis the consumer? You know, I think it's just um, if you really take a look at the consumer and their spend between Home Depot and Walmart, Walmart definitely – did see a little bit of a softening. I just, I think, in my opinion, what we're seeing here is just 
a slight shift. I think we're going to see that come back. You know, the spend, you know, the shock of gas prices going up, you know, several weeks ago to, uh, you know, the lack of certain products. A lot of that takes into account how we're spending or how consumers are spending. I think it's just a, a you know, a, a softening, but not a trend that we're going to continue to see with Walmart. What do you think, uh, which which retailers are going to do the best with American consumers this year? I mean, is Walmart, Costco, Target, uh, those those retailers that offer consumers discounts, are they going to be the strongest? Most definitely. Grocery is going to still be strong. Our mass merchandisers, the names you just mentioned, are going to be continue to be strong. The you know Dollar General and Family Dollar um, brands are going to continue to be quite strong as well. So although we're seeing this um, movement towards going back to mass merchandising, buying in bulk, uh, et cetera, that's where you'll see the winners. But we're also continuing to see, you know, uh, retail overall still gain momentum. I think this was a really, uh, you know, something important to, for us to take a look at. And, you know, NRF just mentioned that U.S. retailers announced nearly seven times as many store openings as closing first quarter of this year. Interesting. So, you know, how about the grocery business there? Boy, when you talk about inflation, a lot of the stories we see and hear uh, are just extraordinary increases uh, in food prices. How, how do the grocers kind of deal with that? You know, if you if we think about gro- the grocery segment, I mean, their margins are, um, you know, quite um, tight in terms of pre-pandemic. I mean, these, this is going back in my career almost 25 years ago. That was the, the, the talk about, you know, how tight margins are in that sector. And so it's really about volume loyalty, consumer loyalty, et cetera. I think that's just compounded where we are today, mostly due to cost in, you know, the supply chain in labor cost um, and just doing business in general. So, you know, in order for grocers to continue to be um, successful, and albeit I'm not speaking of Costco uh, and, and the larger brands um, in, in the mass merchandise because they've seen increases year over year around 12 to 15 percent, you know, these grocers are still, you know, looking at, okay, how do we differentiate? How do we get in front of the consumer on a consistent basis? And that's why you're seeing more and more, you know, uh, online shopping, um, you know, demand delivery, shortening that uh, demand window from instead of same day to in the next two hours. So we'll continue to see that. um, So just grab that loyalty share from some of these consumers. All right, Angie, thank you so much for that uh, overview. We got a lot of uh, retail sales data, a lot of consumer, a lot of retail numbers coming out of Walmart and Home Depot. Good to parse it all out and break it down. Angie Shalanki, National Director of Retail Services for the United States for Colliers. That's a NASDAQ traded uh, company. CIGI is the ticker here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.